welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, it says in your word that your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, our soul keeps them. It says the unfolding of your words gives light, and it imparts understanding to the simple. And so we pray that you would shine that light, the light of your word, onto our hearts, or that you would give understanding to our uh, simple hearts, Lord. We pray with the psalmist that you would turn to us and be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love your name. And Father, as we open up your word this morning and we remember events that occurred some 2,000 years ago, we pray that your love for us in Christ would sink deep into our hearts. And as we walk in Christ's footsteps, Remind us not only that he really did live, really did love and suffer and die, and really rose again, but remind us that he continues to live, he continues to love, 
and to make intercession on our behalf for all of us sinners made saints through his suffering. In him we pray, amen. Good morning, well, this is Palm Sunday. This marks the triumphal entry. It's the first day of Holy Week, or Passion Week, as it's sometimes called. It, it, it's the Passion Week because it comes from the Latin passio, which means suffering. And so it refers to Christ's suffering. Palm Sunday is the first day of the last week of Jesus' pre-resurrection life on earth. So what happens during that week? This is a really important question because if you look kind of at your Gospels in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they devote almost half of the ink on those pages to Jesus' last week, just the very last week in his life. And so this really is a holy week. It's the holiest of weeks. And so what I want to do first is let's look day by day what happens during that week. And that's going to help us to prepare for this week as we celebrate all of the events this week. And it's the Passover season during that time, and thousands of Jewish pilgrims are gathering in Jerusalem for this annual feast. It would have been a time filled with busy excitement and preparation. If you were there at that time, you would have heard rumors of this traveling rabbi that was teaching and healing. Some even said that he raised a man named Lazarus back from the dead. Rumor was that this rabbi was in town, and some had even hoped that he would be the promised messianic son of David that would deliver God's people out of Rome's oppressive rule. So put yourself there. Imagine what's happening. So what happens on the first Palm Sunday? So this is Sunday morning, March 29th, AD 33. Jesus sends two of his disciples to pick up a young donkey, and Jesus rides it into town. And this is a highly symbolic and intentional act by Jesus in which he is declaring, I'm king, and I'm here. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah 9, which we'll get in a bit, and also um, Genesis 49 alludes to it as well. It also follows this Old Testament pattern because it was the same way that Solomon rode into town when he was declared king in 1 Kings chapter 1. And so this is a definite statement by Jesus. And the people respond. They wave palm branches. They lay their robes down uh, like a royal red carpet. And they shout, Hosanna, which means God saves us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was Sunday. And the next day is Monday, March 30th, AD 33. Jesus is walking with his disciples and curses a fig tree. And again, this is a highly symbolic act to show that Israel, as that fig tree, fails to produce fruit and will suffer God's judgment because of it. Jesus then sets his sights on cleansing the temple. It had uh, become dedicated to buying and selling sacrificial animals rather than being a house of prayer for the nations. And the king, Jesus, his righteous anger is unleashed on the tables of those money changers. And that's Monday. 
Tuesday, March 31st, AD 33. Jesus teaches his disciples a follow-up lesson on prayer when they pass by that cursed fig tree again. Tuesday is a day of teaching, and Jesus engages with religious leaders on the issues of authority. He tells the parable of the tenants. He tells the parable of the wedding feast. And both of these parables are attacks on the hypocritical religious leaders. He's going after them, and they know it. And so these leaders fire back. They try and trap Jesus with questions. They ask him a trick question about paying taxes. They ask him another about the resurrection. And one more, they ask, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus fails none of these traps. He's always ready with an answer full of truth and grace. He finishes the day prophesying about the destruction of the temple. Just another Tuesday at the office, right? <laughs> For him, at least. That's Tuesday. So the next day, then, is Wednesday, April 1st. Again, AD 33 is the date. On Wednesday, Jesus continues teaching in the temple. And meanwhile, the chief priests and elders call the Sanhedrin, and they plot to arrest and kill Jesus. Enough is enough, they say. Jesus has gone too far at this point. But they want to uh, kill him quietly in order to prevent a riot from happening among the people. And we don't have as many details about what happened on Wednesday, but it, it is likely a long day of teaching at the temple, much like Tuesday was. Which brings about Thursday. Thursday, April 2nd, AD 33, is the day of preparation for the Passover. Jesus instructs his disciples to make preparations according to plans he's already orchestrated. We'll see him doing that again today when we look at uh, Palm Sunday. At this point, Jesus is well known to the crowds and the religious leaders who are planning his execution. And so these preparations for Passover are done in secrecy. Peter and John are told to look for a man carrying a jug. And this might be a prearranged signal, since it would have been unusual to see a man carrying around a jug. It normally would uh, be done by women in that culture. And so Thursday night then, Jesus sits down, and he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. But this time he shifts the focus. Instead of making it about uh, God's deliverance from Egypt, this time it's about his blood and it's about his body. At the meal, Jesus identifies Judas as his betrayer. He washes his disciples' feet and he delivers a long discourse with his disciples in the upper room. He prays for his disciples. Jesus tells his disciples that he has a new commandment for them. He says, love one another. You'll be known by your love. And this new commandment, or in Latin, as it's called, mandatum, is the basis for the traditional name given to this Thursday, 
Mandatum Thursday or Maundy Thursday. Friday, April 3rd, AD 33, is Good Friday. In the early morning, pre-dawn hours, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. For just 30 pieces of silver, he has Jesus arrested. Jesus asks the soldiers that, ap- that come to him, who do you seek? The soldiers say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds, I am he. And at that moment, all the soldiers fall back on the ground. Jesus is arrested and first taken before Annas, the former high priest and Caiaphas's father-in-law. He's taken there for informal questioning. And then, next, Jesus is taken to stand trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, where Jesus remains silent before his accusers until he is asked if he is the Christ. At that, he responds, I am. And this is the confession that those religious leaders wanted. Jesus is saying he is the I am. And the beatings and the mockings that were prophesied by the prophet Isaiah begin. Meanwhile, Peter's not far off. He denies that he knows Jesus before a servant girl. Then he denies that he knows Jesus to others that are in the crowd. And as the third denial leaves his lips, the rooster crows. And then after sunrise on Friday morning, the final trial in front of the full Sanhedrin condemns Jesus, sending him to Pilate. And with Jesus' final legal condemnation, Judas realizes that he has innocent blood on his hands. He returns those 30 pieces of silver and hangs himself in his guilt. Jesus stands before Pilate and Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, you have said so. And at this, Pilate doesn't find enough fault to warrant an execution, and so he passes him off to Herod to deal with. Herod has heard about Jesus, and he just wants Jesus to perform a magic trick for him. And when Jesus doesn't comply, he sends him right back to Pilate. And at that point, Pilate doubles down that Jesus has done nothing wrong to deserve death. But the religious leaders are relentless. Thinking that he might be able to appease the leaders and the crowd, Pilate offers the option of condemning a murderous criminal named Barabbas rather than Jesus. And the crowd yells, crucify him. Pilate washes his hands. And the crowd responds, his blood be on us and on our children. And Jesus is now mocked, beaten, and made to carry his cross toward Golgotha. Jesus is hung on the cross and crucified between two thieves. On the cross, Jesus prays for his murderer's forgiveness. 
He also promises to the repentant thief next to him that that day he will be with him in paradise. He compels his mom and his best friend to take care of each other after he's gone. He cries, my God, why have you forsaken me? He declares his thirst. He declares, it is finished. And then he releases his spirit to the Father. Jesus breathes his last. Before his body is brought down, a soldier pierces his side with a spear. Blood and water flow out. At the moment of his death, the thick curtain that separates the holy place and the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. An earthquake shakes rocks nearby. Matthew reports that many saints rise from the dead. And at that moment, a Roman centurion exclaims, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus' body is taken, wrapped in a shroud, and buried in a tomb that was bought by a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. Saturday, April 4th, AD 33. It's a quiet day. Not much is recorded, but we can imagine the depth of despair that Jesus' followers fell into. To prevent the disciples from stealing the body and saying that Jesus just rose, the chief priests and Pharisees ask Pilate to seal the stone and set a guard at the tomb. Sometime in the pre-dawn hours on Sunday, April 5th, AD 33, Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, God the Son, reversed the natural known order of existence and was risen from death to life. An angel had rolled back the stone, left the guards there trembling, and then comforted the women that had come to visit Jesus at the tomb early that morning. The angel tells the women, go, tell the disciples the tomb is empty. And the women, initially fearful, though, they run and do tell those skeptical disciples. Peter and John rush to the tomb and find empty linen cloths. Mary returns a little later to the tomb to find a man that she thinks is the gardener. There, Jesus opens her eyes to recognize him in his resurrection body. And we later find Jesus opening up the eyes of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He shows them that all of the scriptures were pointing to him and his sufferings. Sunday evening, Jesus appears suddenly to 10 of his disciples, hiding in a locked room. He says, peace be with you. He has them touch his hands and his side. He eats a piece of fish to prove his flesh and blood resurrection, right? His, his bodily resurrection. He breathes the Holy Spirit on them and then sends them out with the power to offer forgiveness in his name. This is the Holy Week, amen? 
This is the week that we get to look forward to celebrating as we move towards Easter. And so what I'd like to do this morning then is zoom in on the details of the events of Palm Sunday. So we're going to go back to Sunday. What kind of king rides into town riding a donkey? Why does Sunday begin with triumph and then Friday end with defeat? And what does all of this have to do with us 2,000 years later? This morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see that the events of Palm Sunday show us that Jesus is a king over all events. He's also the king over all of our expectations. And then finally, he's a king who deserves all of our worship. So first off, let's look. Palm Sunday shows us that Jesus is a king over all events. Take a look at Matthew 21. Sorry for the slide earlier, too. Uh, We're in Matthew 21, not John. John 12 does tell the story as well, but we're in Matthew 21. Take a look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey." on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. So the first question that you may have when you come to a text like this is, how is Jesus pulling this off? So does he maybe prearrange the donkey and the colt in the village that the disciples are about to enter? And then did he go around and prep everybody Um, that the disciples may have run into with a special password. Jesus is like, okay, the password is the Lord needs them. This is what they're going to say. How does that even work? Are these events supernaturally guided or just meticulously planned? And then the bigger picture question is, is Jesus just kind of orchestrating the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy about the Jewish messianic king who is supposed to come in riding on a donkey. And if you're skeptical, you might even ask the question, is Jesus really who he says he is at this point? Or is he just kind of performing some kind of spiritual sleight of hand? Is he taking advantage of a well-known prophecy to get people to believe he's the Messiah? And I think if you're asking that skeptical question, I think you're asking the right question. The question that we should be asking is, is Jesus really who he says he is? Because if he's truly the King of kings and Lord of lords, then nothing inside the universe happens outside of his control. If he isn't who he says he is, then someone is lying or being lied to. And the good news is we have every reason to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And this passage points to a fulfilled prophecy that the prophet Zechariah wrote some 500 years before Jesus was even born, including this 
passage, there are over 300 fulfilled prophecies about Jesus being the Messiah. These are instances where the Old Testament predicted the very specific details about Jesus and what he would do hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years before he came. So let me just list a few of these. Um, The Old Testament correctly predicts that Jesus would be born of a virgin, that he would be called the Son of God, that he'd be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he'd be be able to trace his lineage back to David, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be given gifts at his birth. The Old Testament predicts that he would flee from Herod, that he would flee to Egypt. The Old Testament also taught that Jesus would be the pre-existent Lord, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. It predicted that he'd be the ultimate and eternal prophet, priest, and king, just like we heard in the catechism this morning. His ministry on earth was even predicted in great detail. The Old Testament taught that he would be preceded by an Elijah-like prophet, that his ministry would begin in Galilee, that he would teach, perform miracles, that he'd be a light to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jewish people. The Old Testament predicts his life in great detail, but not only that, it also predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. It predicts that he'd be betrayed, that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he'd be forsaken by the disciples, accused by false witnesses, that he'd be wounded, beaten, scorned, mocked, and pierced through his hands and his feet. How specific is that? The Old Testament predicts that he would die an atoning death for the sins of God's people, but it also predicts that he would rise again, that his body would not see decay. And uh, if you put this in, in mathematical terms, the probability that one person could fulfill just eight of these prophecies was actually calculated by a mathematician to be about one chance in 100 quadrillion. So one in 100 quadrillion. That's a one, that number, I I had to look this up, that number is a one with 17 zeros afterwards. And that's just eight. We have over 300 prophecies in the Bible. This kind of mind-blowing mathematical improbability shows us that Jesus is not just a figure in history, He is the author of history. And if Jesus is king, which he is, all events happen, and nothing inside of this universe happens outside of his control. And I think we can trust that. I think we know that. Somewhere deep down, we know that Jesus is king over all events in history. But what I want to ask you this morning is, do you trust that he is the king over all events in your story? Do you trust that he is directing all the details, even when the details don't make sense? Every single person, every one of us in this room, we can think of something that is happening in your life right now that just doesn't make sense. Why would God allow this to happen in my life? Why? And the events of Palm Sunday remind us that 
there is nothing that Jesus is not orchestrating, right? There's nothing that is happening inside the universe that's outside his control. And we might never understand why God would allow this particular thing to happen in your story, but we might. On the other hand, we might, right? So what's, what's cool is if we look in John 12, in John's account of uh, the Palm Sunday story, he makes a humble admission. In John 12, 16, he says, John is writing there, and he was also there, but he says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And I think in our lives too, maybe we don't understand why these things are happening at first. There might be a day when we can look back and see what God was doing all along. And in the meantime, we just remember and we trust that Jesus is a king over all events. Palm Sunday shows us this. It also shows us um, that he is a king over our expectations. Look back at uh, Matthew, Matthew 21 again. Take a look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So let's talk about expectations for a minute. It's Palm Sunday. I don't usually ask for a whole lot on, on Palm Sunday. But, but, why can't we be one of those churches where our pastor rides in on a live donkey <laughs> on Palm Sunday. I've seen them. I've seen them on the internet. They're out there. And I do understand, I understand we're a volunteer-run church, but I'm really wondering why in uh, almost 20 years of celebrating Palm Sunday with uh, Pastor Horsefett back here, Why has he never ridden in on a donkey? You know, you guys know he knows people with donkeys. He's treated donkeys. He has access to donkeys. He can get donkeys. And he hasn't. Um, which is fine. It's fine. So that's my expectation. What was the expectation of the, this crowd on the first Palm Sunday? Well, verse 8 says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks. So most of the crowd thought this was great, okay? That was most of the crowd. Most of the crowd were actually taking their cloaks off, spreading them out on the dirt, and making this red carpet for Jesus to ride in on. But that's most of, and what we're going to talk about the most of the crowd in a minute, but what about the rest of the crowd? What about those people who just stood there? Well, the text doesn't tell us what they were thinking, but outside of this Old Testament 
verse in, in Zechariah, the context and the prophecy, kings didn't normally ride donkeys to announce their reign as king, right? They ride horses. They ride war horses coming in. And these people, the rest, were waiting for someone to come and save them. They would have been expecting someone who looks like a king, rides a horse like a king, and here Jesus shows up riding on a donkey. To the rest of the crowd, it would have been like calling up a firefighter and he shows up with a squirt gun. Or calling up a heart surgeon to come and save your life and he shows up with a plastic spoon. What would we expect? And just on a side note, I do think there is a little humor here as well. Um, I, I love Luther says, um, I was just introduced to this quote recently. He says, if God has no sense of humor, I don't want to go to heaven. And I, I'd have to kind of agree uh, with him. And I do think that Jesus has a sense of humor here and is declaring his kingship, saying, you guys want a king? What do you think of this? <laughs> because Jesus subverts all expectations. He's not the king that we would expect to save us, riding on a war horse. He's the king that's promised to save us. So let me read this Zechariah 9 passage, because this Zechariah 9, 9 king is a king riding in, declaring peace on a donkey rather than war. It says um, in Zechariah 9, 9, 9 through 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And listen to verse 10. And the contrast here in verse 10. This is the Lord speaking through Zechariah. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this Jesus riding on a donkey comes as a king over all of our expectations. He brings peace, not war. He's the one who leads by being a servant. Jesus is the one who, though he had all of the riches in heaven, became poor on our behalf. Jesus is the wisdom of God who is the foolishness to this world. He doesn't call us to labor, but instead he calls us to come find our rest in him. He doesn't call the rich and powerful, but he calls the children. He tells us that we gain life by what? Losing it. That we are exalted by being humble. And he tells us that when we are weak, we are strong, right? He brings victory through defeat. And in just five short days from that day, he'll be the one who brings life through death. He's like no other king that this world has seen. He takes all of the world's values and expectations and turns them upside down. So what about your expectations? What do you expect this king to bring into your life?
I'll speak for myself. I feel like I work hard, I try to be kind, try to serve this king, but I also have expectations. Uh, I expect to be comfortable. I expect my wife to always be there. I ex expect my kids to do well, you know, to be successful, to love the Lord, to maybe give us grandkids one day. Not any day too soon. Uh, I expect to have a secure job. I expect to live a long, healthy life. I expect my friends will live long, healthy lives. But you know what? Jesus isn't a king that caters to all of my expectations. He's the king over my expectations. And he's the king who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. And when my expectations are flipped upside down and Jesus doesn't come through in the way I expect him to, I can respond in one of two ways. I can respond with the Palm Sunday crowd or I can respond with the Good Friday crowd. Remember the Good Friday crowd? Which, by the way, this is probably not the same people as the, the Sunday crowd. The Good Friday crowd was filled with religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees. The Palm Sunday crowd was people that, that came into Jerusalem believing Jesus. The Good Friday crowd... Um, they saw Jesus' upside-down kingdom as a threat to their religious system. And so when Jesus asserts his kingship, the Good Friday crowd yells, crucify him, and puts him on a cross with a crown of thorns, mocking him with a sign above that reads, King of the Jews. But look at how the Palm Sunday crowd responds. Look at verse 8 again. It says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him that day were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jump down to verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So Palm Sunday shows us that this Jesus is king over all events, king over all our expectations, and now um, Palm Sunday shows us that Jesus is a king who deserves all of our worship. And this point's gonna be short, this last point's gonna be short. Don't you wanna be part of that Palm Sunday crowd? When all of those expectations weren't met for, for so many people, don't you want to be part of the crowd that welcomes Jesus in and worships him? They spread out their cloaks, they laid down branches, they lifted up shouts of praise, and they confessed him before others. Their praise was like the childlike praise that Jesus lifts up before those religious leaders who were indignant. And so the question for us is, 
How are we to worship this king? What does it look like for us to lay out our robes, to lift those branches, and to shout praise, confessing him as Lord and king? What does that look like? I think it looks a lot of ways, but one of the ways that I think it looks, um, and this is gonna go along with the last four weeks we've been looking at the church and these different images of the church. And worship looks a lot like the ordinary yet extraordinary gathering of the saints each week. It looks a lot like what we do every single Sunday when we gather. This is why it's so important to be here and be a part of it. Because we sing, we sing with shouts of praise, we confess the Lord before one another, we may not lay down our coats and wave palm branches, but we really roll out the red carpet each week and make sure King Jesus is lifted high. Amen? And then the overflow of our worship each Sunday pours out onto every other day of the week. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We worship in spirit and in truth. We pray, we sing, we read the word together, we teach, we exhort, we confess our sins to one another, we bless one another, all while living our lives. Worship looks a lot like what we have the joy of doing together as we live each week as members of the body of Christ, amen? And so as we celebrate this holiest of weeks, may we worship this humble king over all, who is so much more than we could ever expect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for preparing praise to flow from our mouths and lives each week. And I just want to pray right now for anyone that may not know this Jesus as king as king in their own lives. I pray that you would open up their eyes and hearts to receive Jesus as king over all events, over all expectations, over everything in their lives, and that in that they would give him all uh, the worship that he deserves. We thank you um, that as a king, uh, Jesus rides into town on Sunday, and by Friday, he is taking up a crown, but it's a crown of thorns, giving himself for his people, to forgive his people from their sins. May we da lay down our praise to the one who laid down his life for us. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.